the troubles at Erskine Abbey. Noon Friday, a monk stumbled into the town square. Nobody could recall seeing him approach. He simply appeared, standing on the cobblestones, eyes wide and hollow, carrying an infinite sadness in his brow. He collapsed into the arms of the first police officer that approached him. Then there was a flurry of robes. The monk staggered back. The officer shouted. There was a swift pop, and the monk collapsed in a pile. A woman screamed. It really turns the stomach how quick it is, how contained. A little noise which appears out of nowhere and is gone before it has begun. An unspectacular little spurt of blood. In a film, a death expands to fill the screen, swelling with the orchestra. In a film, it is arranged in such a way that our brain understands implicitly what it is seeing. In life, it took me at least half a minute to understand that the monk was dead. It would be several minutes more until I understood that he'd taken the officer's gun and done it to himself. Everyone, even the cops, just sort of stood around for a while, looking at the monk's lifeless body, dark blood slowly pooling in the grooves between the cobblestones. The monks normally sent someone down from the abbey once a month for supplies. When the incident occurred, it was coming up on three months since we'd seen any of their number, though none of us had yet made any attempt to inquire as to the situation up on the mountain. Sometimes they were late. We didn't mingle much with their affairs, and they mostly kept to themselves anyway. An envoy was organized to contact the abbey, a full day's journey out of the valley and up the mountain, a precarious climb at spots, even in good weather. Though the sun was shining all the morning of our climb, there was a furious and relentless wind which whipped across the southern face of the mountain and threatened more than once to topple me over some stomach-turning cliff. The air was crisp and sharp, and my face was numb until we stopped for lunch and hunkered down behind a wide cliff face. Three of us in all. The owner of the store where the monks traded, the city planner's assistant, and myself, a medical doctor. Nobody spoke while we ate, hunched like gargoyles over our rations. The sun had crested and was beginning its descent when we came panting and ragged to the top of the mountain. A series of soaring brick aqueducts nestled into the rock greeted us. We passed through and found the abbey itself down a sweeping path of tall grass, perched silent in the mist. Shadows of clouds moved like the formations of some great army marching across the vast continent spread out before us. The door to the outside wall was open, and so we entered. Though none of us communicated it at the time, we discovered much later on that all three of us had been half expecting to find two dozen dead monks scattered about the grounds, punch glasses tossed aside in rapturous ecstasy. But there was not a monk to be found, alive or otherwise. We split up to explore the interior, for though the exterior of the buildings comprising the abbey appeared modest, the structures extended down into the mountains, countless hallways and chambers tucked deep into the rock. We agreed on our parting to meet back in 15, but once we set to exploring, none of us even thought of reconvening until more than an hour had passed. 
Books on desks remained open and waiting for their reader to return. Bowls of cold stew gathered dust. Beds went unmade, as if their occupant had only moments ago fled for the shadows. Footsteps echoed off the dark stone. We eventually did reconvene, and when we stepped outside of the abbey we found a changed world, the mountaintop gripped by a dismal fog. We'd just broached the subject of the evening's sleeping arrangements when we first saw the scientist. He approached like a half-formed ghost through the mist, his figure stubbornly fuzzy even as he drew to within ten yards of us. His bathrobe swayed a bit around his knees and his stench was overpowering. He lowered the spear he was carrying, a kitchen knife duct-taped to a long pole as our identity became more clear though his eyes were always darting over our shoulders, glancing at the open maw of the monastery behind us. The sun was setting, and he invited us to return with him to his quarters on the far side of the mountaintop. There was only one rod around the rocky peak. At its narrowest, it was scarcely wide enough for one man to pass at a time. I had to turn my feet sideways, outward like a penguin, and press my back against the rocks. So in single file, we rounded the corner and came into view of the radio telescopes, massive twin satellite dishes aimed at the night sky, which was quickly fading from gray to black. Stay behind me, the scientist was using his spear as a walking stick. Don't stray from the trail for any reason. We continued down along the dirt cutout through the small grassy field toward where the telescopes stood on the edge of the mountain, and the scientist, taking a small key from his robe pocket, opened the padlock on a retrofitted cargo trailer and showed us the inside, filled with generators and monitors and racks and racks of audio equipment. Then he took us inside of his own trailer, which smelled much like he did, only stronger. None of us were surprised when he told us that he'd barely set foot outside of it for over a month. The windows were boarded up, with slits down the middle that reminded me of the gaps in the battlements on top of the monastery's castle towers. I had noticed, as we entered, another trailer of identical size, some fifty yards away in the dark, though on second glance it turned out to be little more than a fire-ravaged husk. He started the stove for the coffee and then stepped outside the door to turn on a nearby generator. As it roared to life, the entirety of the grass field between here and the peak was suddenly awash in a cold white light. The scientist re-entered the trailer, wiping his hands on his robe. The door clattered shut behind him and he locked it, a three-step process which included the door lock, a hook and eye latch above that, and finally a homemade two-by-four door bar which swung down and landed in a slot above the latch. There was a place near the center of the door that had been hastily patched with more wood, Almost out, he said. We asked him of what? Everything. Gas, food, water. He took a box of matches from his robe pocket and struck one, lighting a cigarette he'd tucked behind his ear. Cigarettes, he said. He took a drag and collapsed into a nearby desk chair. The plastic wheels rolled across the warped linoleum. Sanity? He was the last remaining member of a five-person crew, responsible for monitoring and recording radio signals from deep space. 
Crews rotated in six-month shifts, and his relief had been due two weeks ago. They got him, he said. I know it. Who got him? we asked. His eyes appeared as deep wells of sorrow amidst the darkness. His mustache hung well over his lip. Who do you think? There was no way down the mountain from this side of the peak. The only way was back past the monastery. The city planner was never informed of this study, said the city planner's assistant. The troubles, we were told, started months earlier on the evening of the summer solstice, when the telescopes picked up a strange signal. The scientist wasn't on duty at the time and heard about it the next day at breakfast. It just kept repeating itself over and over for almost five minutes, and then we lost it. The researcher who'd been on duty was apparently a good friend of our scientist. We all checked her work multiple times. According to all the charts, all the data, the signal was coming from a black hole, or else damn close to it. He had some canned peaches on the shelf, which he shared with us, and we made dinner from our rations and shared them with him. We didn't think too much of the signal at first, considering its origin. We thought it had to be just some strange anomaly, but then it kept popping up every night around the same time. We all heard it the second time. He ate his food hungrily, noisily, left crumbs and bits of peach juice in his beard. It was horrible. I don't even know how to describe it. Just thinking about it gives me chills. The wind howled outside, shook the trailer door on its hinges. It wasn't like it made you want to run screaming the first time you heard it, though. If anything, it made you want to listen closer. Like you'd be able to make something out right beneath the surface if you waited long enough, if you listened close enough. I, I know how crazy that sounds. But we all stood around listening to the recordings for hours. That first night, it must have been after midnight by the time we finally all went back to bed. It takes a while for it to seep into you, just how awful it is. But it's seeping all right. All the time, from the first second you hear it. I heard it in bed that night while I was laying there in the dark, trying to fall asleep. Over and over. I realized at some point that I developed a nasty headache whenever I listened to the recordings. But then at some point later on, I realized that I'd have a nasty headache whenever I wasn't listening to the recordings. A headache... Only the signal itself could alleviate. Right here, he pointed to the center of his forehead, just above the bridge of his nose. People made personal copies of the recordings and listened to them during their free time. We all met each night to listen to the signal live. It usually came. It was always the same. I'm sorry to interrupt said the shopkeeper. This is very interesting, but we came here looking for the monks. Father Garvin, do you know him? The scientist stared at the shopkeeper for a long moment, then chewing on a piece of jerky. Course I do, mister. Why didn't you ask? I'll go get him for you. 
He spun a quarter way round in his chair then, the faded black leather between his bare legs cracked and ripped, yellow foam poking through. He brought his hands to his face for a moment, and when he turned back toward us, his eyelids were flipped, inside out, and he rolled his eyes so far up into his head that his irises were completely hidden, his eyes an unbroken field of milky white. He smiled a toothy grin, holding his hands, spread palms out on either side of his face for a moment as if to say, Ta-da! Hello there, son! He spoke with an exaggerated yokel accent. With no pupils in his eyes, the voice seemed bodiless. It's me, Father Garvin. Always remember, you're a child of God. Well, thank you for the coffee, said the city player's assistant, standing. But it's getting late. I'd better go find my bed for the night. The deep way that the scientist laughed at that still makes my blood run cold, like he was as shocked as he was tickled. His eyes spun forward in his skull and righted themselves. I am afraid you have misread your situation entirely, sir. There's two beds in here, said the city player's assistant. He gestured to the general untidiness of the place, the piles of mess which seemed to be creeping out of every corner and crevice. And I don't want anyone to have to sleep on the floor. There were plenty of empty beds back in the monastery. Besides, I'd like to get an early start on the investigation tomorrow. Not that your hospitality isn't appreciated. I had no interest in stepping back into the monastery before the sun was good and high in the sky, but the prospect of sleeping with my nose pinched in a trailer which had been collecting all of this man's filth for months did make my stomach turn a little bit. The city planner's assistant left after that, gloating that he would be washing his face in the morning with the spring water that fed the castle. You're a damn fool, said the scientist. Stay on the trail. He took the lantern, and so he watched his progress bobbing above the grass as he wove his way back across the field, and then went around the bend, where the ledge was narrow, and was gone. The shopkeeper and I decided we would share the second bed, even though the mattress was only twin size. He was a large man, the shopkeeper, but I worried that if I slept on the floor I'd be overrun in the night by a carpet of rats rushing out from underneath the bed. I'd noticed the warm greenhouse atmosphere of the trailer before, but it wasn't until I was lying there in the dark trying to fall asleep that the stagnance of the air really began to weigh on me. With no windows and a ceiling fan that moved so slowly it felt like it was taunting me, it was hard to breathe and I could feel beads of sweat forming around my temples, running down the back of my neck. The shopkeeper radiated heat and soon the sheets were soaked with sweat. We slept on our sides with our backs occasionally touching in the night. A few minutes after the lights were out, his breathing took on the telltale rhythm of sleep, every inhale rattling his sinuses and threatening to break through to a full-on snore. I worried that if I fell asleep, I would fall face first off the edge of the bed where I was perched. And the wind came in waves. When it gusted, it really gusted, and rocked the whole trailer and screamed about the mountaintop like the furious whistle of a train. And when it was quiet, it was deathly quiet. So quiet I could hear my own pulse beating in my ears. Like not a single blade of all that grass was so much as swaying.
The scientist mumbled sometimes in his sleep, but I couldn't recognize whatever language he was speaking, if it was a language at all. And for all of that, I have never once wished that I'd traded places with the city planner's assistant or followed him back around the peak and into the monastery. At some point, I managed to fall asleep, and when I woke up, the scientist was waiting with a mug of coffee in his hand for each of us. I didn't like mine and politely dumped it in the dirt when I stepped outside to pee. The shopkeeper downed two cups before the scientist had to cut him off. The fog on top of the mountain in the morning was so thick that every step I took, I worried, might take me straight off a cliff into oblivion. Sigh a little relief each time I heard dirt crunch beneath my shoes. We eventually made it around the peak and followed the trail down until it ran into the stone wall of the monastery. We followed the wall until we found the wooden double doors, one of which was cracked open a few inches. The darkness inside was so thick that it seemed to be alive, thrumming with energy. I pushed the door open a few inches farther, enough to stick my head in. I called the assistant's name and heard my own voice echoed back at me, so delayed that for a brief moment I did not recognize it as my own. I waited a while longer and heard nothing, and then I pushed the doors open all the way. Even then the daylight barely made any headway into the gloom. The fog was inside, too, crept in through the cracks between the stones. The three of us each turned on our flashlights and probed deeper into the interior. I will wait out here for you, said the scientist, sitting down and leaning his spear against the wall. He produced a cigarette from his robe pocket. It was clear that he was not going to be moved, and so the shopkeeper and I ventured into the labyrinth calling out periodically for the city planner's assistant. After a few minutes, without ever actually mentioning it to each other, we both agreed to give up on the shouting, and I felt a bit better after that, leaving the silence be. We found no trace of him, and tried to retrace our steps from the previous day's journey to find the barracks and dormitories where we'd seen beds. Maybe he was still sleeping. Might have fallen off the mountain on his way back said the shopkeeper quietly, matter-of-factly. I wanted to be upset with him over the suggestion, but... but he only voiced a thought that had been ringing around my own head since our search began. It was sitting in every empty room we found, waiting for us, a little bit louder each time, with every passing minute of silence. Maybe he just went back down the mountain, I said. He always was something of a coward, wasn't he? We stepped into a rotunda we'd been in before, with a half-dozen hallways leading off in various directions, and realized that we had no idea how to find our way back to the entrance. Hello? I cupped my hands and shouted. For a long moment I heard no response but my own voice, and my blood froze at the prospect of our trying to grope our way out of there in the dark. It felt like the sort of place where we could walk for an hour, thinking we were going in the right direction, and only end up an hour deeper into the belly of the castle, and even more hopelessly stranded. Then, the scientist's voice, far off, almost hollow-sounding, lilted into the rotunda. This way. 
We picked what seemed like the most likely hallway and made it back a few minutes later, out of breath. Without noticing it, we'd descended significantly in altitude since stepping foot in the abbey and had to climb a bewildering number of stairs to return to the surface, as it were. The scientist was waiting for us just inside of the door. Outside, rain was coming down in swirling sheets, so we lit a fire in a nearby hall and pulled around it three armchairs which we'd found scattered about in various corners of the room. The sheer size of the hall revealed itself in the growing light of the fire, its high vaulted ceilings, and the howling and battering of the rain seemed a little farther away. We warmed ourselves in silence for a long while, the chill of the stony interior slowly melting away. Then the scientist continued his story. One night, we were all in the trailer, chatting, waiting for the signal to arrive. All of a sudden, I got this queasy feeling, this electricity running down the back of my neck. Then, someone screamed. I turned, and I screamed too. I couldn't help it. There was a face outside, looking in at us through the window. Someone flung open the door, and we saw one of the monks running across the grassy field toward the peak, arms held out at his sides, sleeves grazing the top of the moon-drenched grass. Who knows how long he'd been watching us for. He stuck a cigarette between his lips and crawled over to the fire, craning his neck, jutting out his jaw to light it. He settled back into his seat, took a drag and settled in deeper, closed his eyes and exhaled the smoke into the air, and almost smiled then, as if he'd been able to travel somewhere else in his mind for the briefest of moments. When he opened them, he spent a long time staring into the fire, working his jaw, rolling the cigarette back and forth in his lips, a tick of his deep concentration. The signal didn't come that night. In fact, we didn't hear it for another week after that. We all talked about how relieved we were, and I believe that we really were, at first. The thing had kind of leaked in and started to take over our lives, but I don't think any of us had really realized it until it went away. I came up here wanting to learn the violin. There were like 50 books I was going to read. But even in the little bit of time that I managed to give those things, all the while I was still just thinking about that fucking signal. You start to orient every single day around that post-dinner coffee, sitting around bullshitting with everyone, waiting for it to arrive. Everything else sort of stops mattering. Even the bullshitting, even the other people, it's all just something to kill the time in between. Which makes sleep even harder, of course. If you don't give yourself to anything during the day, if you spend nine-tenths of it twiddling your thumbs and waiting, at the end of the day, it's no wonder your body is unsatisfied. Even if you've been awake for 16 hours, you've spent none of your vigor, and so your body only thinks that you've moved to your bed and decided to twiddle your thumbs in the dark. <sighs> we never talked about it, but I think a lot of the others were going through similar things. I spent many nights laying in bed, staring at the space where I assumed the ceiling was, feeling that distinct presence of someone else awake in the dark, doing the same in the bed across from mine. We only ever talked about the signal itself. The consensus opinion formed that it was some sort of distress signal. But then Melanie claimed that she'd begun to hear subtle differences in the vocalizations, if, if that's what you could call them and that they were growing more distinct every day. Nobody else could hear them, even when she attempted to point them out to us. 
It wasn't more than a few days since the signal had stopped when I walked into the trailer and found Melanie sitting at her desk with her headphones on, scribbling furiously on a legal pad, page after page of notes. By midweek, none of us were even trying to hide it anymore. We walked around with headphones on, ate dinner with headphones on. I don't know how to describe it. It just... It's right there, you know? Like, right there, beneath the surface, but barely beneath. When I listen, I have a constant feeling that my brain will somehow manage to derive some meaning from the very next sentence, if that is even what they are. Like I'm perpetually on the terminal edge of understanding, off balance, leaning back and forth can go either way, swinging up to the edge of getting all of it and needing a last tiny little nudge to fall over it and never getting it. Just one minor epiphany to end all epiphanies, to unlock the universe once and for all. Like having a word stuck on the tip of your tongue every second that you're conscious, and in most of your dreams, too. I asked him if they had tried manipulating the signal. He laughed. All we did here for weeks was manipulate the damn thing. We turned it over every which way you can possibly turn over a sound. Verified without a doubt... Unless the commonly understood notions of the universe are way the fuck off that the signal is coming from the black hole we thought it was coming from. He flicked the butt of his cigarette into the fire and eyed us for the first time since he'd begun. We tried to get the monks to open up a casino. He roared with laughter. Arthur, he was the lead engineer. He told one of the monks, he says, If you fellas got a liquor license down there, you'd be each living in your own castle. Six months might not sound like a long time, and maybe it's not for a monk, but none of us were monks. You feel every goddamn minute of it up here. He laughed some more and then pulled a flask from his pocket. He took a long pull and then offered it to us. The shopkeeper declined. He has been sober since he drunkenly hit his wife nearly five years ago now. I finished the flask and handed it back to the scientist. Those guys never had any sense of humor, though, he said. They were very polite, sure, don't get me wrong, but I never saw one of them laughing, even before the whole mess with the signal. I asked him what the monks had to do with the radio signals. You'd have to ask them, I guess, he said. Good luck finding one. He laughed again and tried to take a sip from his already empty flask. All I know is they started acting real funny sometime after we started receiving the signal. There was one fella who used to always come over here, and he'd bring us a basket of potatoes from their garden. We saw him a couple of weeks after the signal, and he was a completely different person from the one we'd known. Jittery, always looking over his shoulder, and real unhealthy looking too. Skinny as a twig and dripping sweat. Three brothers have gone missing in the past week, he said. A few days after that... Melanie was over on the other side of the peak, on that little hill that looks over the abbey, picking wildflowers. She saw one of the monks out near the garden, just sort of standing there. She waved to him, and when he saw her, he started walking up the hill towards her. She thought it was a bit strange, but that he must have had something to say to her, so she waited for him. When he was about ten feet away from her, the sleeves of his robes, when she was sort of holding in front of his chest like this, the scientist demonstrated. Must have separated a bit or something because she saw for a half second that he was carrying an obscenely large dagger. Headed straight for her, walking fast, 
bearing down. She tried to back up, but Batway was headed straight up a steep hill. He lunged at her. She says things got kind of blurry after that. Somehow she escaped. We heard her before we saw her, screaming her head off, tearing around that bend faster than I'd ever seen anyone take that section of the trail. She ran inside the closest trailer and locked the door and started bawling then, which she could barely even do because of how out of breath she was. We spent the rest of the afternoon until dark, watching the trail where it came around the peak. I remember my eyes burning, tearing up. I could barely bring myself to blink. We even watched the jagged rocks at the peak, expecting any second to catch light of the monk there, foaming at the mouth and crawling on all fours towards us. That morning it had seemed an impossible climb, but seeing the scar across Melanie's face gave us all the feeling that anything might be possible. We didn't see any of the monks, murderous or otherwise, for many days after that. Arthur and I marched down to the monastery that morning after Melanie's incident, but we waited at the door for nearly half an hour and were never answered. We pressed our ears to the door, silence inside. Was that it? The last you saw of them? asked the shopkeeper. The scientist shook his head. Sometimes in my dreams, that was it. I can't even enjoy those dreams anymore, because as soon as I realize that's what's happening, I know I'm dreaming. But no, I saw plenty more of them. He tried again to sip from his empty flask and then threw it across the room where it clattered into the shadows. One night I woke up, still dark, and had no idea why I was awake. So for a minute or two I was just laying there, blind, trying to figure out what had woken me up. And then, across the room, I hear these real, quiet, wet sounds, and heavy breathing, unfamiliar breathing. I found my flashlight and shined it at the opposite bed. One of the monks, completely nude, was hunched like a gremlin on Arthur's chest, squinting under the beam of my flashlight. His mouth was covered in blood, as was Arthur's throat, torn and gurgling, still spilling onto his pillowcase. I don't remember thinking anything after that, only my heart pounding and my hand flailing around in the dark looking for something. I found the flare gun and fired it at the monk. I remember his screaming. I remember being blinded, seeing spots, the smell of sulfur. I remember stumbling out of the trailer, the smell of burning flesh, the smell of burning everything. I never saw the monk make it out. It burned for a long time and stopped around when the sun was rising. I remember how loud it sizzled all morning. I remembered the way the smoke mingled with the morning mist off the grass. We were ready when they came the following night. A whole horde of them, at least half a dozen. I couldn't count them all, moving around like they were in the dark. It felt like they were swarming around the trailer, throwing themselves against it, running across the roof. At one point I worried they'd rock it off its base and send it over the edge of the cliff. But instead they seemed more interested in getting through the door. We had a shotgun on hand for wildlife emergencies, but in the days before the signal Arthur and I had taken to passing the time by shooting, and so there were only a handful of shells left in the box. One of them eventually smashed through the porthole window and reached in, trying to feel for the lock, 
I took a shot at him and missed his arm, but I believe I did hit him in the guts through the door because he hollered and ran off. Ah, I should have saved the shells, but I wasn't thinking. I was so worked up. I ran out the door and started shooting at anything that moved. They were fleeing. I took aim at every shadow in the grass until I was out of ammo. It was real quiet after that, till I heard Melanie screaming back in the trailer. I thought she'd been stabbed again, the way she went on. But when I went in, I found her at her desk yanking drawers out and emptying them onto the floor, screaming, Those bastards! Those motherfuckers! Again and again. Mark was standing near the door, watching her. I asked her what they did. She said, They're gone! The tapes! They took my tapes! And it was true that the window above her desk had, at some point, been pried open. I'll kill them, she said. I'll kill the motherfuckers! But Mark and I were both, admittedly, surprised when she grabbed a knife from the kitchen and a flashlight and took off into the night. So Mark went off to bring Melanie back, but we agreed that I should stay and guard the trailer. The rest of our tapes were still there after all, so we agreed we did. He volunteered to go after her. I asked him what happened to them. He only shrugged and looked at the floor. He looked at the floor for a long time and then stretched and cracked his neck and said, Anyways, how would you gentlemen like to listen to the signal yourselves? He pulled a tape recorder out of his robe pocket. I shared a glance with the shopkeeper then. I could tell in his eyes that he really wanted to listen. I declined for both of us. He looked at both of us, still holding the tape recorder, giving us a chance to change our minds. Before we had the chance, something, someone materialized from the inky darkness in the hall. A monk, standing in the doorway, with his hands together, his hood covering his head, leaving his face shrouded in long shadows. Welcome, he said. We were, to a man, I believe, too frightened to scream. But as we spoke to the monk, though my anxiety did not let up, my immediate alarm did. This did not seem to be the case, however, for the scientist. When I saw him any time after the monk's appearance, he appeared utterly pale, as if drained of all blood, his wide eyes stricken with an existential terror. I apologize. You've found us in quite a state, the monk continued. I'm sure you've noticed we haven't been down for groceries lately. I could see his lips spread into a toothy smile beneath the shadows cast by his hood. We were looking for you fellows, in fact, said the shopkeeper. I'd tell you that I can explain everything, he said, but I doubt I could even explain half, and you'd have me committed if I tried. The scientist watched as the monk moved closer, farther into the room, seeming almost to float beneath his robes. I couldn't tell if the scientist's lip was trembling or if it was only a trick of the firelight. Suffice to say, some months ago, one of our order went missing, gone without a trace. We searched all over for him. We even inquired down in town about him, you may remember. Then, not a full week later, another went missing. Same story. And it just kept 
happening. A dozen men completely disappeared. The monk removed his hood, and I saw that he was missing his thumb on his right hand. It's hard to explain, but during this period, everyone in the abbey who wasn't vanishing began to feel vaguely ill, like a thick cloud was hanging around our walls. Everyone going around, huddled up in blankets, coughing, all of us with a throbbing headache lurking in the background at all times, mumbling everything we said to each other, or else just grunting. But there was one, Father Jacques, who seemed taken particularly harshly with whatever malady was afflicting us. He walked around grasping at his head with both hands, muttering to himself, snarling at the rest of us. At night we sometimes heard him moaning in pain in his dorm. And then one day, Brother Pretoria stood up at dinner and announced to all of us that he'd seen the father skulking around the night before, snatch a man from his bed while he slept. He was sure of it, he said. The monk had by now joined our circle, if you could call it that, and the pale fright had not left the scientist's face. Well... The poor fellow was right, after all. Only, he didn't know. Half of the rest of the men left knew full well who was snatching men, even before he opened his mouth. That half of the rest of the men had spent the past month plagued by the same horrid visions that haunted Father Jacques, he sighed. The rest of us ran. To the catacombs, you might even say, chuckling a little bit ran to hide in the deepest, darkest corners of the abbey to listen to Brother Pretorius screaming as they towed him away. God, how he screamed. Good heavens, towed him where? asked the shopkeeper. The monk eyed him, firelight dancing in his gaze. Then, without another word, he drifted off in the direction from which he had come. Out of the hall, back into the shadows. We followed him. He led us down a long corridor, down a short staircase, and then, at the end of another corridor, through a heavy wooden door and into a dorm bedroom. We took in the rather plain interior by the light of our flashlights. A chair and desk in the corner beneath a small stained glass window set high into the wall, glowing dully with moonlight. A four-poster bed on the wall directly in front of us. The monk moved in this direction, and then lifted the sheets which were hanging over the foot of the bed. My flashlight cast a strange shadow underneath. I crouched down for a closer look, and found a large hole in the floor, big enough for a person to climb down comfortably. When I looked up at the monk, he was grinning. He gestured for me to lead the way. I looked back at the scientist, who was lingering on the far side of the room, keeping careful watch of the doorway. The three of us pushed the bed aside, and I stood over the hole, shining my light straight down. The shadows jumped and danced with every unintentional movement of my wrist. I sat down and dangled my feet over the ledge. The tunnel went straight down for perhaps five feet, and then turned the way I was facing toward the bedroom door at something like a hundred degree angle down. With a last look at the others behind me, I pushed myself forward and slid down into the hole. I twisted myself around and went feet first into the next section of the tunnel, barely able to see past my shoes when I tilted my head to my shoulder. Eventually my feet hit a wall, 
I squirmed my body through a 90-degree corner and turned to the right. I bumped the wall and knocked the flashlight from my hand. It bounced and slid down the rest of the way, eventually landing somewhere below. I followed after it, and the tunnel continued downward still, the angle slightly steeper than the previous leg. All I could hear was the sound of my shoes, scraping pebbles, my own breathing like a storm in my ears. Finally, after I had traveled maybe as much as 50 or 60 feet downward, into the mountain, into the darkness, the floor fell out from under my feet. Remembering that I had heard the flashlight land, I let myself fall a short distance and found, suddenly, that I was in a much more spacious chamber. I picked up my flashlight and swept the room and saw legs, brown robes. My heart stopped. The shopkeeper landed behind me, but the legs did not stir. The shopkeeper let out a clipped scream when he saw what my light had found. The robe-clad body was laying on the ground some five feet to my right. I watched it for a long time, its face obscured by its hood. Finally, I worked up the nerve, somehow, to put one foot in front of the other and approach the figure. He was chained to the wall, and as I came around to stand more in front of him, my light could find no face beneath the hood. There was nothing but fabric. My mind spun in place for a moment. This person had no head. The shopkeeper screamed again, even louder. I turned to find his light aimed at a spread of bodies lined up along the wall in neat fashion. Those heads, which were still attached to shoulders, were cracked open like the shell of a nut, and the brains were either completely missing or else unrecognizable, splattered about the inside of the skull and the hood. The monk and the scientist dropped into the chamber behind us. We had to crouch slightly to stand. You were asking where we'd all gone off to, said the monk. Eleven of the bodies were clad in identical robes, but one was dressed in plain clothes. My flashlight flickered, dimmed. The monk walked methodically down the row of his fallen comrades. What is this place? asked the shopkeeper, examining the corpses one by one. I believe it may be hell, said the monk. So don't dawdle. You wouldn't want to be here when the devil returns. I'm not sure when I realized, in my brief scan of the room, that the monk was no longer in the room with us. It was several minutes after he last spoke that the thought dawned on me, and only then did I thoroughly run my light over the length of the room to make sure there weren't any shadows he could have been standing in. None of us had even heard him leave. In running my light over the entirety of the chamber, I discovered a significant-looking pile of stones on the far side of the room and went to investigate. The pile surrounded another hole in the ground, this one narrower, the walls smoothed as if by centuries of friction. The scientist was standing right behind me. I don't know how long he was there before I felt his breath on my neck. You are wondering what's down that hole, I can tell, he said. He leaned forward and whispered in my ear, More than you can possibly imagine. 
My flashlight flickered again. Took much longer this time, and some shaking, to return to normal. A click behind me. A mechanical whirring to life. He was playing the tape. White noise, white noise, until... Something cut through. I don't know why, but I threw my flashlight at him. Whether I hit my target or merely stunned him into dropping it, the tape recorder fell hard against the rocky ground, stuttered, and went silent. My flashlight died along with it. The shopkeeper's light was on the ground, facing the wall, only visible by the tiny ring of light it cast there. The shopkeeper himself was sitting down, his back against that same wall, fast asleep. Father Jacques dug that whole tunnel in only two and a half months. Can you believe that? Said the scientist. I asked him how he could possibly know such a thing. Because, he said, I helped him dig. The shopkeeper's snore echoed around the chamber, breaking the silence. It really would have been better for you if you drank more of your coffee, he said. He stepped next to the man chained to the wall and placed his hand on his shoulder. Would you care to relive this man's final moments? I observed that one of the corpses was missing a thumb. Alone in the dark, chained to a wall. You hear it well before you see it. A deep rumble, a guttural feeling, like the whole world is shaking. I mean, hell. In the dark like this, you never really see it. But you get enough of everything else. Your mind paints a picture. We didn't carve out this room. We didn't know it was here until our tunnel ran into it. And we didn't dig that small hole either. He struck a match and flared, lighting up the space for a moment. And then he lit a cigarette. Smoke curled into the ceiling and then spread. It lives in the mountain. Father Jacques says it's as big around as a barrel and long enough to wrap around a city block and touch its own tail. There was a subtle shaking as if the earth were shifting beneath my feet. If it hadn't been so quiet, so still, I almost certainly would not have noticed it. I'm still not totally convinced that I didn't imagine it. The sound it makes when it comes out of the tunnel, it's a sort of sickly sliding noise. Sometimes it'll flick its tongue out a few times to feel around. That's usually when men start screaming if they're awake. I really wish you would have had your coffee. It's really an awful thing to listen to. The shopkeeper continued to snore in the corner. A grinding sound from somewhere deep in the mountain, like rock sliding over rock. It moves deliberately, slow but not too slow, never rushed. It slides across the lap, immensely heavy creature, and pretty soon your arms are pinned to your sides, and your chest is being compressed, your whole body gets squeezed harder than anything you've ever felt in your life. 
Your lungs can't even expand now. You can no longer scream. This is about when some of the luckier ones pass out. Because after that, it makes a pass across your face. Impossibly heavy, cool scales sliding over your skin with a dreadful, unstoppable momentum. Immense, immense pressure on your whole body. Then it wraps around the back. Usually it goes pretty quick from there. Half a minute maybe, or less. Sometimes they pop right away. That crack, that wet, fleshy, coming apart in the darkness. That darting, curious tongue. I could see the scientist wherever he moved in that chamber by the cherry of his cigarette. He was staring down into the hole. He whispers things when he's full, when he's satisfied. Terrible, wonderful things. Things most men cannot, should not hear. He turns to look at me, or to look at where he thought I was standing. It's all there, in the signal. You only have to know how to listen. I had heard enough. I charged and saw the expression of shock on his face when I emerged from some unexpected corner of the dark. With a cry, I drove my shoulder into his chest, knocking him backward. His heel clipped the pile of rocks and he toppled over and was lost down the hole. His screams of pure shock soon turned into something else, more guttural, filled with a more primal terror. It sounded like he was stuck a fair way down. The mountain shook again, more forceful than before. I hauled the shopkeeper out of the tunnel and back into Father Jacques' dorm, sweat pouring off of me, panting for breath. The scientist's screaming faded into the rock as we emerged back into the abbey and pushed the bed back over the hole. It was dark outside now and the rain had yet to relent. I was doubtful as to whether I could navigate the trek down under these conditions, and absolutely sure that I could not do it if I was carrying the large shopkeeper on my back. I found a room that seemed tucked away and somewhat hidden within the confines of the castle, with several beds spread about, and quietly closed the door. I awoke sometime in the night. The shopkeeper was snoring somewhere in the darkness, and outside the rain had stopped in the world was all steam and silence. Then, as my senses adjusted, I listened closer and could hear coming from somewhere in the distance a wailing. Like a pained ghost somewhere out there in the thin air of the mountain's peak, it continued on for several minutes and then stopped. In the morning, I made the short hike back around the bend toward the satellites and trailers in search of some supplies for our voyage home. That was where I found him. The scientist had apparently strayed from the trail in the dark, in the storm, in his adult state, and found one of his own traps. A scar formed in the rocky soil which he had filled with half a dozen upturned spikes. He was skewered in three places along his chest and stomach, his blood mingling with rainwater puddles on the ground. His eyes were wide open, his mouth contorted into a gruesome final scream, and his hair, to my great horror, had gone completely white. 
Several weeks after the events at the monastery, there came a knock at my door one night when I'd finished eating dinner and had just settled in for a night of reading. It was the shopkeeper. I invited him in and we sat in front of the fire and drank. Normally a very self-assured man, on this evening he was nervous, constantly fidgeting. Eventually he drew the conversation around to the subject I could tell he'd come to discuss. He wanted to return to the peak before the satellites and labs were taken down and come back with a copy of that tape. He wanted to hear the signal. I sat there for a long time, watching the ice melt in my drink, saying nothing. I know you probably think I'm a lunatic, but don't you want to hear it? he asked. Perhaps a half hour later I bade him good night and we parted ways, though I had great difficulty falling asleep that night. I knew that he was going back, whether I would join him or not. A few nights later, as I made my way home from a patient's house, I stopped at an intersection at the edge of town, where the face of the mountain was in nearly full view. Something told me to look up at the mountain. There was a tiny lantern moving along the southern face, slowly climbing toward the peak. It was perhaps a month later when I visited the shopkeeper's shop at a time when I knew he was out. I wanted to talk to his wife. She was behind the counter when I entered, her sleeves rolled to the elbow, her hair tied back in a bun. She said hello, and I bought a few odds and ends, and we set to talking, the store being otherwise empty. I wanted to know if her husband had been exhibiting any strange behavior lately, if she'd noticed him listening to anything over and over again, or if he'd been isolating himself, perhaps, anything like that. She said that he had been spending long hours alone in his office with the door locked, often late into the night, but that that was not so unusual for him. He was acting a bit lethargic, even a bit morose lately, now that I mentioned it, but she figured it might have just been the weather. I wanted to ask if he'd been complaining lately of any headaches, but before I could pry any further, her two young children burst through the door and ran to the counter, burying themselves in her skirt, still wearing their backpacks from school. They had a million things to tell their mother, and they had to tell her right that minute. She laughed and apologized to me. I told her it was quite all right. We're going on a camping trip this weekend, you see, she said, to the top of the mountain. I tried to hide the shock from my face. Was her husband going? Well, sure, I'd hope so. It was his idea.